Are you in perimenopause or menopause and have questions? My co-host Andrea Donsky has a podcast called Menopause Reimagined, where she answers your questions about this phase of life. So stay tuned at the end where I will share five minutes of her amazing podcast and there will be a link in the show notes where you can go and listen to the whole episode. Andrea is brilliant and she has worked so hard and knows her stuff. So be sure to check out Menopause Reimagined after this episode of Health Power. Thanks. Starting on January 11th, Health Power will be posting every Tuesday instead of every Tuesday and Thursday. On Thursdays, starting on the 12th, you're going to get Dog Eared with Lisa Davis. Say write books about dogs. I interview them. So if you're a dog lover, I hope you will check it out. Tell your friends, tell your family, also tell them about Health Power. So again, Health Power every Tuesday, Dog Eared with Lisa Davis every Thursday. Hope you'll tune in. So I've been in the health field since, oh my goodness, 1992, but I was working more on like a physical therapy side. I started in aquatic therapy and uh, fitness and personal trainer and all that. And then uh, in the late 90s, I got my master's in public health and became very interested in obviously public health and healthy living and, and providing great information. When did you get your degree? Oh, um, in 1998. Did you okay. have a master's in public? I got mine in 99. It took me a while to get there because I had all these health problems. Yes. And see, that is the voice of the fantastic Sally N. Norton. Uh, she is a nutritionist and the author of the new book, Toxic Superfoods, which is so impressive. And it's Toxic Superfoods, How Oxalate Overload is Making You Sick and How to Get Better. So this is something that I've been in the field for a very long time. Got into health media in 2009, started with the radio. Actually, I started in TV in 2000, then I did radio, then doing podcasts. I've never heard of this. Sally, you're blowing my mind. Welcome to Health Power. Thank you. It's exciting to meet another person who's smart enough to discover this like mystery topic. Yeah, it, I mean, it's just incredible. You know, you hear about superfoods, 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 how great they are. You, you don't really hear a downside. So I was just absolutely fascinated. But you mentioned a moment ago about your own health issues so tell us a little bit about what's going on and then tell us what oxalates are and how they played such a prominent role. With my health? Yeah. 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 So I've been actually geeking out on high oxalate foods for a long time and didn't know it. <laughs> if you look back, once you get this lens of recognizing oxalate exposure, which is completely missing in public health, nutrition, medicine, it's just not there but it ought to be. And it's, it was there for 100 years. We had a diagnosis available for 100 years of oxalate overload. It was called the oxalic acid diathesis, uh, which is this tendency to get sick when you eat high oxalate foods, very sick. And uh, since uh, 1842, they named it that. And it was that it was some form of oxalic acid syndrome for 100 years. But we dropped it. <laughs> When did we drop it? Well, we I think mostly what happened is in the wake of of sort of refining the ability to do blood work and we decided that medicine in order for it to to maintain its position as the authority in health would need to rely on more scientific approaches. So we got very interested in using diagnostic testing as soon as the technology and the finances permitted that. So blood work became the thing once we could do it. And somehow we decided that all health would be 
and disease would be revealed by taking blood samples and testing what's going on in the serum, which is, I think, a failed idea. Uh, because by the time your blood is messed up, you are really sick. And in in our really in the heart of heart of a public health person, true health starts with maintaining health. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> Not waiting till you're at death's door to do something about your health. And unfortunately, that's a whole cultural problem now where people think they can't ignore their health until the doctor says they should do something. But nowadays, the only thing the doctor has for you is some kind of drug with a side effect. And the doctors are not trained in, in nutrition at all. And those of us who are trained in nutrition really are not adequately trained in cell biology and even the whole, the whole process of research and how researchers can go wrong which seems to be happening more and more with modern research, that it's more and more getting wrong, <laughs> getting things wrong, which is really quite frightening that uh, our whole big institutions that we rely on are, are kind of failing us. And certainly Oxalate is a great example of that. So I here I was happily a food geek, love to eat, and very willing to eat vegetables and all kinds of adult foods as a kid many of which were high oxalate and began gardening as a nine-year-old, love my beets and beet greens and Swiss chard and all these things. And those are very high in oxalate. Now, oxalate, most people never heard of the word. Yeah, I was about to ask. I should have asked first, what the heck is it? What the heck is that? (laughs) Yeah, it's this really small, really impossibly small molecule. It comes from oxalic acid, which is a two-carbon molecule, which, you know, an alcohol molecule is two carbons. It's really small. And Interestingly, despite its smallness, there's enough of it in normal foods that we eat that it can build up in your body to the point where it ends up as kidney stones. Yeah, that's the main ingredient in your typical kidney stone is oxalate, oxalic acid combined with usually calcium, because that's what it does. It, It grabs minerals, minerals love it, and calcium and oxalate get together and they stay together. (laughs) They love each other. So calcium oxalate is a frequent form of oxalic acid in nature. Plants make crystals of oxalate. They make oxalic acid too, and you eat both the crystals that they build. So what happens with when oxalic acid gets together with, with calcium or other minerals, you develop this compound that, that wants to crystallize. So when it has you know a few other brothers around, it only takes probably about eight pairs of oxalic acid molecules combined with, say, a calcium to suddenly be able to what we call precipitate out or, you know, come together and form a nano seed crystal. And once you get a crystal started, if it doesn't take a lot to keep it growing. You just need enough of the ingredient. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> you need enough of the basic ingredient to build a crystal. You can't really build a kidney stone if you don't have enough oxalate around. And that simple fact of material, the material truth of it is is you can't build something without substance. You have to have your building materials. And the major source of the building material of these calcium stones that create kidney stones, for example, that's only one place in the body where oxalate's causing mayhem. But it's a pretty unpleasant one that gets symptoms and gets attention and gets research dollars. (laughs) It's one we're familiar with. But that, you know, that... um, that buildup is primarily created by the way we eat. And it's not that oxalates in and of themselves are harmful. It's the overload. So that's why the title says how oxalate overload is making you sick. 
Well, we're built to handle some oxalate because our physiology produces a little bit, 10 or 12 milligrams a day, which is um, only about half of what we can tolerate. So we can tolerate maybe 24 to 26, call it 25 milligrams of oxalate coming through our kidneys every day. We're built for that. The problem is, is that you're absorbing 10 or 15% of what you eat. And your classic spinach salad is probably between 400 and 500 milligrams of oxalate. So if a 10% absorption of a, of a spinach salad, that's someone with a healthy gut without leaky gut, but the best health you can get, you get maybe just 10% absorption of that oxalate, you're at 50 milligrams from one salad. You've already gone twice past your capacity to eat it, to handle it. And tell us about your illness and what happened. Yeah, well, it's probably started very early in life. And um, I mean, even as a little kid, I had ear infections a lot and other strep infections a lot. And it turns out that 40 minutes after you eat, say, a spinach smoothie, which would be the equivalent of almost two spinach salads, right? Because you put way more spinach in a smoothie or juice and it, you know, makes it really easy to chug it down. So that level of oxalate that one study looked at about 40 people were given a little spinach smoothie with about 700 milligrams of oxalate in it. And within 40 minutes, the immune cells in the circulating blood were damaged, seriously damaged, and now sending out pro-inflammatory signals to the whole body saying, hey, we're wounded here, we're wounded here, come help us now. It's like, oh my gosh, your rescue workers are now wounded. is not good. Oh my gosh. So you had gotten a lot of oxalative foods? But I, yeah, <laughs> I, I did. I was the kid who would eat vegetables and, and we did things like at holiday time, my grandfather would make this fruit stolen that was uh, full of citrus peel, very high in oxalate. I was the one who would eat as much as I could be allowed to have and more. Uh, I, I was gravitating toward high oxalate foods, but we weren't we weren't raised a lot on the, the classic ones that I think most people are initially exposed to oxalate in childhood is potatoes, the baking potatoes, the French fries, the potato chips and potato snacks and the tater tots at school. And then there's, of course, the baked potato with whatever on it. it when I was uh, in high school, the big thing was potato skins. You go out to. Oh, Yeah to a bar and that was the bar food. So potato skins are less, way worse than just the potato without the skin because a lot of uh, plants, the oxalates are in that barrier layer protecting the plant and the seed. Seeds have this circle of oxalate crystals often in them around the outside helps make them hard and helps protect them and it stores calcium for the seed. So there's different plant parts. It can make it even worse. But I say most of us in modern life are growing up on some form of baking potato too often, peanut butter and peanut products and chocolate. And now we're eating almonds and cashews and we're pushing spinach and chard and beet greens and buckwheat and chia and hemp and curcumin and blackberries and pomegranates and kiwis and and black beans and beans generally those are all like the high oxalate foods. And we think they're so great for us. Well, I want to get back, Sally, before we jump into that, I want to know like, what were your symptoms? What was your illness like? Tell us about that. And then I want to jump into these foods. Well, you know, it it can end up being lots of different things for different people. I started having 
trouble focusing and studying in, in school. And before that was going on, I started getting back pain and arthritis as a 12 year old. And I was told it was just growing pains. <laughs> but that was when I was a heavy gardener. I started gardening as a nine year old and beets and Swiss chard were major, major parts of the garden as were tomatoes. And you can eventually overdo tomatoes. But our, the big thing for me, I think actually thinking back, my big exposure as a kid was playing with the rhubarb <laughs> behind the garage. <laughs> we would eat it as kids. My mom made great rhubarb crisp. I love, love, love that. And rhubarb is like the classic way to kill a kid. Like if the kids eat the leaves of rhubarb, they can get very sick or even die from the oxalate of it. That's why the rhubarb leaf is poisonous because of the oxalic acid. Oh, in I leaf. know that. My mom said, don't eat the leaves, they're poisonous. But no one ever stopped to think, well, if the leaf is poisonous, what about the rest of the plant? Is that really okay, especially for a child? Right. So anyway, my symptoms included arthritic pains that got worse in my 20s. I had rheumatism and joint swellings. I would get weak and I have all kinds of pain. And that got really bad in my 20s when I was vegetarian. And then I became a vegan and it got so bad, I couldn't walk up and down stairs without pain. And I'm 25 years old. And I'm like, like, I, I became like this 80 year old from the time I was in my mid 20s, all through my 30s. And, and that was the vegetarian diet. And some of that loosened up when I got back to adding meat to my diet, but new things came on new symptoms came on. I mean, my fatigue just grew. It was in addition to the arthritis. It became more like fibromyalgia over time, and it became deeper fatigue. I mean, I was already struggling with, with mental focus, but the fatigue was both physical and brain fatigue that just got worse and worse. When I was in at UNC getting my master's degree, I was struggling with with biostatistics like you it's hard to learn stuff like biostatistics if your brain is fried oh yeah it's hard to learn anyway for some of us <laughs> it's hard to learn some pain in the life. some of that stuff is craziness abracadabra stuff like oh man you have to have a special kind of brain to really want to be doing stats definitely to do that <laughs> but it i found that I had to stop being a vegan because i was so tired and i was getting reactions and i wasn't good and so i I, what I realized is I could no longer tolerate wheat and beans, so I adopted the sweet potato as my starch because I was told in my world of integrative and holistic health and healing and nutrition that the sweet potato was the low allergy food that you could tolerate and wouldn't trigger all this stuff. And shortly after adopting a sweet potato as my daily starch, I got intense pains in between my shoulder blades and like the rhomboid muscle area in the evenings which is at the end of a day of eating all day long. That's when your blood level really gets high about four or five hours after you eat something. But every four or five hours, you're eating more. So by the end of the day, four hours after dinner, you're, the amount of oxalic acid getting into your bloodstream is at its worst. So oftentimes you get these symptoms at bedtime. And that started happening after I started eating the sweet potatoes where I could distinctly have trouble falling asleep because it felt like I had a knife in my back. Was terrible. And then I developed at the same time, lots of fine wrinkles around my eyes, you know, where you start to look old. I was 35 or something oh, like wow. that. Like I immediately, but I never thought I not for a second did I imagine any of that had anything to do with how I was eating. And then I went off to the 
dermatologist because I had this lump on my head that was small, like a big mole or something that started to bother me. And I was unable to style my hair because it would whack it and hurt it. And I don't even use a comb. I have curly hair, but it was so bothersome. I, I went to the dermatologist to cut it off. And I said, you know, I've got these little brown spots appearing all over my skin. And he laughed at me and he said, that's age spots. And I'm like 35. And I'm like, that's not funny. I didn't tell him that, but I was very wounded that he that I'm suddenly old. I'm wrinkled. I have pains. I mean, I've been feeling 80 anyway, but I didn't want to look it. Right. <laughs> but I was beginning to look it too. Right. And so I never for a second imagined diet had anything to do with any of that. But it turns out it was all oxalic acid poisoning from the sweet potatoes and the way I've been eating. How did you find that out? Oh, man, it took so many more decades of suffering. <laughs> So frustrating. I had to quit my work and um, I had to have a hysterectomy and it turned out I had endometriosis. Everything was a mess in there. It all had to come out. And, you know, I had endometrial scarring on the colon and I, I didn't respond. I didn't recover well from the surgery. And so I'm, I'm still unable to exercise. I mean, it's getting worse in a way. I was unable to exercise or think I could barely read the mail. I mean, I was not in good shape. So I was going to this endocrinologist since I no longer had ovaries, like, okay, let's try to fix my hormones. Maybe I'll function. And he's like, well, we, everything's fine. You look great. Your tests look great. He sent me to the sleep lab. He sent me to his friend, the sleep doctor. That's what he does with people he doesn't know what to do with, which is a really smart move. Because <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know I wasn't sleeping. I just knew I was exhausted. And it turned out the sleep lab, you know, they hook up all these wires on your head and everywhere. You can really move. And this, the um, test results showed that my brain was waking up 29 times every hour. Oh, my gosh. I, my mouth is like hanging open. <laughs> you can't see me, but wow. You don't get any REM sleep. You don't get any real sleep. Like, no wonder I could no longer. I mean, the work I did was helping develop research projects and writing them up in big grant proposals and doing budgets and helping oh, it's a lot of focus. It's a lot of brain work. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I was pushing myself to work that kind of work, despite this kind of brain damage that was going on. This is the neurological oxalic acid is very neurotoxic. It's very toxic to the connective tissues. It, it uh, creates an acidic situation that breaks down collagen and you end up with problems with fibromyalgia, and not just because of the collagen breakdown and then the neurological damage. Um, you also get a lot of gut damage from eating calcium oxalate crystals, which is like eating glass dust. Wow. Right? And something that damages membranes, the oxalic acid and the crystals it forms in the little nanocrystals cause severe membrane damage to cells where the structure of the the fats are is scrambled and that sets up a cell for death and removal and it, it also affects the membranes of the suborganelles subcellular organelles like mitochondria and damages mitochondrial function and there's so many toxic effects to it it's amazing it just starts with the most basic thing if you eat high oxalate foods the minerals in your food are not as bioavailable. That means you can't get them into your blood and get them into your cells and use them for your enzymes to run your physiology. 
That's a problem because deficiency becomes a real, when you don't have enough of what you need to run your program, you as a cell are struggling. And that leads to lots of problems. Deficiency of minerals is so important because the mineral is the cofactor that make enzymes run. So the enzymes, their shape and their ability to do what they do is broken when then they can't always get their supplies. And so you become subclinically deficient in calcium and other minerals. And it can be whatever minerals your system is struggling to manage. And it causes a lot of electrolytes. I mean, I just like, it's all sounds confusing because there's so much mayhem going on from simple stuff like, oh, now you're eating a nutritionally deficient diet because you're choosing food so high in oxalate that you cannot get those minerals. And we've known this. This is, the research was very well established by the 1930s. By about 1935, we already had a half dozen studies, both with human feeding studies, because before HIPAA, you could do lots of stuff, (laughs) and give children high oxalate foods and see what happened to them or give them spinach, and in animal studies, because by then, by the 30s, we had developed this model of using small animals in labs that had short lifetimes instead of using big we used to use big agricultural animals that have longer lifespan and that's too expensive and onerous, but that's really where nutrition came from was from the agricultural side and it it landed in agriculture. And so it's in the, you know, USDA and things like that is where we're housed as an idea, as a nutritional or a scientific concept, not in medicine. And it it keeps getting kicked out of medicine and ends up as a home ec thing. (laughs) Like, you get your nutrition degree, you go to home ec school. You don't go to medical school. You don't go to science school. You go to home ec school because it's a kitchen science in the minds of. So I'm jumping around because this is such an exciting topic and it's just so mind blowing. It, it blew my mind so much that I had been ruining my health, being a healthy kid, eating good vegetables and doing everything right and getting a degree in nutrition to help others not get sick and me being sick. Like, it's so disturbing to someone like me, who's a public health nut, who wanted to be a voice to give people an option to avoid disease. It gave myself so many health problems, so much struggling and suffering, doing the right thing. This is so disturbing. I can't begin to share with you, both emotionally, philosophically, and professionally, how I needed how I needed some resolution of not just my suffering, but how could I have been so wrongly educated? And and how could my field of public health nutrition be so out to lunch? Right. You've probably heard how important it is to take probiotics. And trust me, you don't want to take just any. You want to take Omnibiotic Stress Release. It's a psychobiotic that is backed by science and is an award-winning physician-recommended brand here in the U.S., What is a psychobiotic, you might be asking? Psychobiotics are types of probiotic bacteria that have been shown to directly impact your mental health. And my family and I have seen a difference in ours since taking our daily omnibiotic stress release. These are targeted probiotics. They have a highly effective powder delivery mechanism. They have clinically tested health benefits and they are vegan and hypoallergenic. Omnibiotic Stress Release's unique powder delivery mechanism ensures that 83% of good bacteria reach the desired area of the gut, compared to an average of 7% in top probiotic capsule brands. So I encourage you all to go to omnibioticlife.com, 
you will get 15% off of your order by using the promo code LisaDavis15 at checkout. Again, these are incredible probiotics. You want to have a healthy gut. You want to have less anxiety. You want to feel better. I highly encourage you again. So go to omnibioticlife.com. Use the promo code LisaDavis15 at checkout. You will be so glad you did. This is such an important thing you can do for your overall health. Yeah, that's huge because you're, you know, you pride yourself on on providing this wonderful public health nutrition information to find out, holy crap, it's made me sick. What's it done to others? And at the same time, please don't put, you know, I'd hate to see you blaming yourself. I'd hate to see you beating yourself up because, you know, we know what we know, right? And when you know something new and you find out the new information, then you share that. But if you think you're doing the right thing and your heart's in the right place, that you know, I just want you to make sure you're kind to yourself. Well, thank you. And that's always the reassurance I give my clients because I work with train wrecks. I work with people that are so, so, so sick from this. And the sicker you get, the more you do these things because everyone says the spinach smoothie is saving you and more raspberries are good and more dark chocolate is good. And we're, you know, you take a, you take someone who's failing and you give them more poison and their life falls apart and they blame themselves like there's something wrong with me. And it's just, there's something wrong with our information. Now we knew back in the 1930s that it's dangerous to give infants high oxalate foods because it causes devastating calcium deficiency. And the medical folks who had this nutrition council wrote and decided that we didn't need to separate out beets, beet greens, and spinach from the other greens because, hey, whatever, let's not be that complicated. So we've been patronizing the public for a long time and simplifying concepts and just eliminating the oxalate piece because who wants that wrinkle? Right. (laughs) Well, you know, I'm curious because I eat a lot of dark chocolate, but I don't eat almonds. I don't eat spinach. I don't eat cashews. I don't eat beets. I don't eat anything except maybe some blueberries pictured. I'm looking at the cover. You've got beets, you got green, beet greens, you've got blueberries, star fruit. Blackberries, not blueberries. Blueberries are not particularly high, although the I think the wild ones are higher oh, are they? Okay. than domesticated ones. So the small little wild ones are a little bit high in oxalate. And the problem with foods is that they're a natural substance and their growing conditions and varietal differences and genetic differences will affect how much oxalic acid they make, how much crystals they have to build. You know, for for example, in tomatoes, if it's very humid and, and there's varietal differences for sure, and there's so many varieties that have been developed in the last 100 years or so, there's, you know, hundreds of tomato types. But if the soil is high in calcium and it's a humid year, the tomato will have a lot more oxalate in it. And so much so that crystals will develop in the tomato fruits themselves and cause damage and causes what they call like gold something, gold specks, gold spots. Those gold specks are damaged tissue from too much of these large crystals forming in the tomato. So you can't say for sure that any one food has a certain amount of oxalate. You have to test that food. Um, and in order to, to categorize, say, blueberries, you probably need a half dozen tests every year for four or five years and be really clear about 
the growing conditions and the variety in order to be able to understand what's influencing oxalate content in that particular food. And blueberries is just one of thousands and thousands and thousands of foods. So you'd really have to devote a lot of talent and resources and money to really knowing for sure. But blueberries generally are quite low compared to a black raspberry, which is really high. Interesting. And then again, the collard greens, the spinach, the beets. Not the collard greens. It's really just three greens plus sorrel, which we don't eat a lot. But in the standard greens, it's just three greens that are a problem. It's not the greens that are a problem. It's spinach, beet greens, and Swiss chard. And the truth is, Swiss chard is beet. It's the same family. Yeah, that's what I thought. They call it silver beet in Europe because it's it's got a white, the classic Swiss chard has a white stock. Now we've got a red stock version. That's very, that's the same thing as a beet green. And that's worse than spinach. Red stock, Swiss chard, and beet greens have more oxalate than spinach. But it is just those three greens that are a problem. All the others are pretty tolerable level of oxalate. Pretty, it's so low. Lettuce and cabbage are so low. You can practically consider it zero. And I eat a lot of cabbage. What about, uh, you mentioned peanuts. Now on the cover, you also have almonds and you mentioned cashews. How, how oxalative are those? Yeah, they're, they're, nuts are not designed to be digestible. So they have lots of anti-nutrients. Plant put oxalates in there partially as a self-defense. And in nuts and seeds, they're heavily defended with not just oxalate. They have heavy metals in them and other problems. And um, they're just indigestible generally. So they're not good for your digestive tract. And that any damage from either oxalate or these other anti-nutrients like phytates and, and lectins and things increases the uh, gut damage, which leads to leaky gut, which leads to more oxalate poisoning. So nuts are tricky in many ways. And I feel that, well, the research suggests and has since, let's see, it was... Um, 1823, there was a great study, a tremendous study about how oxalate kills you. You know, it was looking at, it gave dogs and cats and many, many animals different dilutions of oxalate to see how it killed the animal. And it was clear to him that the more dilute it was, the more toxic it was. Because dilute means dissolved. See, oxalic acid dissolves in water. It's an ion. It breaks apart from its um, when it's not calcium, it's it's harder to break it when it's calcium. But even calcium oxalate can be broken down if need be. But um, that uh, now dissolved oxalic acid ion in the fluid that's very dilute easily travels from your stomach into the blood, and easily damages the liver cells that hits next and those cells lining the vascular tissue that brought it there. And then it easily moves from the liver because the liver can't, quote, detox oxalic acid. It has no enzymes for breaking down oxalic acid. We're not built to eat high oxalate foods. We don't have a detox strategy for them at all. In fact, the liver makes oxalic acid and adds more. And the more inflammation in the body and the more nutrient deficient you are and the more stressed the liver is, the more oxalate your body will make. And sadly, vitamin C is one of those substances that turns into oxalate in the body. So you absorb this dilute almond milk, right? Right. Very little almonds in almond milk. You're buying jugs of water and fillers and gums and fake vitamins, right? So 
And, and that is such a lovely dilute solution that it's very toxic, even though it isn't that many almonds. So the nuts are really tricky because people are using it in place of milk. Now, calcium being a binder of oxalic acid protects us from overabsorbing oxalate. And so a high milk diet with lots of cheese and dairy or fish bones or something is protective to a small degree but doesn't give us permission to eat spinach. It doesn't handle those really super toxic levels of oxalate, but it might make it much better where you can eat your kale and um, actually benefit from the nutrients in that food versus just be, I mean, one of the points I didn't fully make is that we measure minerals in vegetables and say they have them, still not doing bioavailability. So we're counting calcium oxalate crystals that are in spinach as if it's calcium and telling people this is a high calcium food. When we have known for a hundred years, it is not only a, not only a non-calcium provider, it's a, it sucks calcium out of your system and creates calcium deficiency, but we tell people it's a high calcium food. In 2023, we're seeing things like that, which have been not true for 100 years or since the beginning of time. Right. God, it's so discouraging. So for people listening who say, yeah, but I eat a lot of spinach and yams and uh, these other things, and I don't feel weak or tired. I don't have any of these symptoms. Does it vary at all on your genetics or what your system's like? Anything affecting your gut function will affect how much gets into your body. So that's the first one. How good is your gut? for now. <laughs> you keep eating those foods and it may not stay good. That's a big problem. Like prevention is always preferred of course. In, my, in my mindset, but that not everyone is thinking that way. And then your, your um, kidneys available, ability to get rid of it quickly helps a lot. And the more stressed your kidneys are, the harder it is for you to get rid of it. So those are two really obvious things that affect. And I think your genetics affect how much abuse your stomach can take, you know, in your digestive tract. And your genetics affect your kidneys a lot. And that's why, in fact, most people don't get kidney stones from a high oxalate diet. It's only the people who can't compensate and compensate and compensate I'm a great compensator for oxalates. My tubules can dilate when crystals are forming in the kidneys and can release the crystals very well. I produce enough citrate because I eat a pretty alkaline diet and have enough citric acid there that prevents the stones from occurring. My kidneys can produce all these special proteins that prevent kidney stones from forming in the kidneys. But some of these proteins, one of them called osteopontin, too much of that in the body, which is a response to too much oxalate because it helps prevent crystallization and control crystallization. Too much osteopontin over time ends up giving people things like fibromyalgia and cancer. Oh my. And oxalate can lead to breast cancer. And there's so much evidence out there. There's so much science out there. I try to put some of it in my book. You can't fit it all in one book. There's so much. Well, no, you did a great job. So are you saying, just to be clear, like just stay away from these foods, like across the board? Well, I'm not a big one to tell people how to live their lives. I'm telling you, if you choose to eat these foods, you are playing a dangerous game. You're going to end up with osteoporosis or at least osteopenia. You're going to end up with aged skin and an aged brain, and you're heading for probably dementia. You're heading for some kind of health crises. It, it just often is completely silent until you get into end stage. 
just like any other disease, you don't know you have cancer often until you're six months from your death. Right. My neighbor found out she had cancer in like the day after Christmas and she was dead in 10 days. Oh my God. You know, so sometimes sad. you don't know, partially because you don't want to know and you don't go get your scans done or whatever, but diseases can be going on and you, you don't, this like that 40 minutes after the spinach smoothie, you're immune cells are damaged. That's leading to problems with chronic infection, but there's no symptoms of that. It's just that later you have problems with sinus infections or UTIs, that's, you know, urinary tract infection or bladder infections or yeast infections or little streps or something quite serious. I've had people with C. diff, which is a life-threatening infection, completely reverse it by getting the chia seeds and spinach out of their diet. Oh my gosh. By the way, what was on your head? Was that related to this when you went to see the dermatologist? That was some little growth or mole thing. And that's the kind of stuff that shows up with the oxalate is you get these little, little cysts or little growths, or, you know, some people are very cystic in their response to oxalate. Every physiology seems to respond to oxalate in a different way. And skin problems are really common with oxalate as well as the it's a sort of a connective tissue. It's an element of the connective tissue problem. It's also that the skin is the largest organ of detox. And if you can push something out of the skin, that's a very efficient way to get rid of junk rather than forcing your vascular system to be the roadway for a toxin and then insisting that your precious kidneys handle too much of this toxin. In fact, the body's doing a lot of things in the background to protect us from damage and symptoms. So it's doing this kind of management of a catch and release, catch and release. And when you eat too much, it's into this sequestration or holding mole mode because that's protecting your vascular system and your heart and your kidneys from the oxalate damage. You see, if you have too much oxalate in your blood, you will have a loss of calcium and other minerals in the blood, which will cause cardiac arrhythmias, or you'll have that loss of calcium and mineral control, electrolyte control, in the pacemaker and the heart muscle itself that can lead not to just arrhythmias, but heart block, which is a type of heart attack where the, your, the electrical control system of the heart fails. Oxalate is the most obvious cause of that. And some people will get those symptoms after they stop eating the high oxalate foods. Now, I know we only have a few minutes, but how soon after you discover what was wrong and you stopped eating the oxalate uh, the oxalates in the food, how quickly did you feel better or was it a long process? Well, until you recognize that you might feel better for three days and then feel just as bad and on the fifth day, then you don't, you don't even know that's working. You think you have the, the problem is, is we mistake the body's response of wanting to get rid of this. You know, remember I said it does catch and release, right, catch and right. release. So it has to catch while your intake is high. And when you lower your intake, now it wants to release. So that increases the oxalic acid levels in your bloodstream and your kidneys and your symptoms will come back. Oh, okay. So I didn't get that. I didn't understand that in 2009 when I first tried this. So I dismissed, I went back to my beloved sweet potatoes. I grow organic sweet potatoes. Like I love them. And I, I didn't want to give them up. And, and so I started adding them back and I didn't feel worse because by adding back oxalate, I get back into the catch side or the sequestration side. 
that lowers the oxalate in the blood and then you feel better. So adding back on, you feel, so it's really confusing. You get a honeymoon period, which might be three days or three years. And then suddenly you don't feel good all over again and new and sometimes horrific ways. So that's the rub. You got to read about that in the book to try to make your mind around that or come to one of my classes or something. Absolutely. To- I mean, this is just, there's still, you'll have to come back because there's still so much more to talk about. I mean, it's just fascinating. Toxic superfoods, how oxalate overload is making you sick and how to get better. We didn't talk about the how to get better part. So this, you're going to have to come back, Sally, because we didn't have enough time. I mean, this is just incredible information. And in the meantime, tell us all the ways we can find you. Thank you. Well, it's really fun to, to be with a public health person. I cannot tell you how exciting it is to be with a colleague yeah, definitely. in talking public health. And I would love to talk solutions and keep the conversation going because I've never seen anything that can help people as much as this and something that's so unpopular. <laughs> Nobody wants to hear their beloved spinach. Nobody wants to. No, I'm like, come on, dark chocolate's like my one thing that, because I have a bunch of food sensitivities and I'm like, please don't take my chocolate and sweet potatoes. People, but but see, that's good. You're keeping a little oxalate in your diet there. That's keeping you from getting this release problem, but you might need to. to I don't need, I don't need any of the other things. Moderate it a little bit. So you don't keep adding. We have to find that sweet spot where you're getting, you're within your capacity to handle it and allowing your body to recover from any past, you know, problems. Yeah, absolutely. Well, where do we find you in the meantime? Yeah, I have a website. It's just sallyknorton.com. That's the best place to reach me. You can email us through there. I am on social media a little bit, particularly Instagram. Um, But mainly come to my website and and just reach out to us if you need anything. All right, Sally, this has been great. And I'm excited to have you back. This is great. And enjoy your day. And everyone get toxic superfoods. Sometimes the truth hurts. Let's just be honest. <laughs> but it's good to know. Oh, it's so nice to feel better, though. Yeah, I'm so yeah, you look fab. I was gonna mix fantastic and fantabulous. You look fantabulous. Let me just say. All right, Sally, have a great day. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Health Power. Coming up now is about five minutes of menopause reimagined with Andrea Donsky. If you want to hear the whole episode, it's episode 61, Sexual Health and Menopause with Dr. Lori Petito. Be sure to go to where you get your podcasts and add Menopause Reimagined. Welcome to Menopause Reimagined. I'm your host, Andrea Donsky, and I'm a nutritionist for more than 16 years who's in menopause. I'm a menopause educator and avid menopause researcher. The purpose of this show is to educate and empower you as you enter into perimenopause and menopause and beyond so that you can take control of your symptoms and your health. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Lori Batito. She's a clinical psychologist with a specialty in sexual wellness, and she's been, she's been a practicing psychotherapist for over 30 years. For the last three decades, Lori has been doing radio and television, sharing sex and relationship advice. Dr. Lori is the author of The Sex Bible for People Over 50, and she's done two TED Talks on the subjects of sexuality. Now, here's Dr. Lori. Welcome to the show, Lori. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited to have you because I want you to share what inspired you to become a clinical psychologist talking about sex. So I've been doing this a long time and from the beginning of my career talking about sexuality. So I've always wanted to be in the helping profession. I started off as a social worker and then went on to do a doctorate 
in uh, in psychology and did a lot of training uh, in my earlier years as a sex therapist and just was really fascinated by human sexuality. I had an ease about talking about it, did research in that field, and then got the opportunity to talk to audiences and to kind of disseminate information. So for over 30 years, I was also right from the beginning, beginning of my career doing radio. So I had a a radio program talking about sex, answering people's questions. Um, For 10 years, it was like a once a week thing. And then it became for for 22 years, I had a nightly show uh, in Montreal um, on the airwaves, which was, you know, I did over 5,000 episodes, each and every one talking about sexuality and relationships. And uh, so to me, if I look at what my raison d'être is, like it really is to educate the public like you do in, in so many other ways. Right. But to me, that's what it was. It was providing uh, evidence based, science based information to people and opening up the conversation. So I never shied away from any topics related to sexuality because we need to talk about it. If I talked about, I don't know, a fetish, you might not engage in it. I might not engage in it, but somebody out there does. And why? And this allows us to understand how other people live their sexuality. And will it will make us less judgmental in the end when we have a better understanding because we tend to judge that which we do not understand. Uh, so to me, that was really important. So I did radio and television and print and um, now, now a podcast. And, and so my whole life has been around talking to people about uh, sexual wellness. My book came about um, when I was turning 50. Mm-hmm. So when I was looking around and all my friends were 50 and I was 50 and and then I started, well, even before that, having people come to the office at, like in their 50, 60 range saying, oh, you know what, I, I'm done with sex or, mm-hmm. it, you know, it hurts, so forget it, it's okay, whatever. And I was like, why? Like, should there be an expiration date to, to sexuality? Like, sex is so good for you in so many ways. So I started doing research in that field and then uh, came up with, uh, wrote the book. And I, I was approached to do this book as part of a series, actually. And uh, it's the Sex Bible for people over 50 and trying to help people have the conversation, but also find solutions. If you want to hear the whole episode, it's episode 61, Sexual Health and Menopause with Dr. Lori Petito. Be sure to go to where you get your podcasts and add Menopause Reimagined. Well, that's it for our show today. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you and we would appreciate it if you could please rate and review and leave a comment because the more you engage with our podcast, the more you will find it and help other people find it wherever they listen to their podcast. So be sure to follow us. I'm at Andrea Donsky and at Naturally Savvy and Lisa at Lisa Davis MPH. Thank you so much. And please share this episode because the more you share shows you care. We'll see you next time.